Destructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with Good afternoon. Welcome to the War Room. This is Bill Evans, your host. I'm with my longtime friend and brother, Mike Chastain. He's a pastor of Southbridge Community Church in Savannah, Georgia, his hometown. Uh, Mike um, graduated from the Citadel. He was involved in the Navigator Ministry there. He's a longtime friend of another good buddy of mine, Jack Campbell, who we've interviewed here. And uh, Mike, so Mike, want to welcome you to the War Room. Thank you, Bill. I've been trying to corral Mike in front of a microphone for some time because Mike has a unique, um, had the unique privilege of really being friends, associates, and rubbing shoulders or sitting within in the classroom of some really outstanding men that many of us in the Reconstructionist camp look up to. Uh, he, he knew, uh, you knew Van Til, right? I met Van Hill. I didn't know him as a friend, but I met him. And Rush Dooney. You Rush Dooney personally. Gary North. Gary North, yes. Uh, Dave Chilton. David Chilton. Yes, David Chilton. Uh, Ray Sutton. Yes. Uh, and especially, you were very close with Greg Bonson. Mm-hmm. Yes, very. And um, and and Mike has been. Uh, he was the first post millennialist I ever met. I didn't know anything about Christian Reconstruction per se. I was attending, uh, we were attending Covenant PCA Church in Columbia, South Carolina, I think at the time. Or were you living in Charleston still? I was living in Charleston, and I was engaged to Joanne, and we were about to get married, so I was making lots of visits to uh, Columbia. Right, right. So, but he, he really, you had a chance to really kind of be around during the, I won't say the glory days, because as post-millennialists, we think the glory days are still ahead of us. But that's <laughs> true. <laughs> but in terms of um, the '80s and the '90s, I guess when reconstruction when reconstruction was really making a big uh, splash on on the evangelical scene, so to speak. An unofficial historian, you know, James Jordan, you knew him and yeah. closely with uh, R.C. Sproul was one of your instructors. At he was a professor at RTS, yeah. As well as you had a, a working relationship with uh, D. James Kennedy. Yep, I worked with D. James Kennedy in 1974 before um, um, I ever went to seminary. I worked with Evangelism Explosion in a group called The Greenhouse, which was evangelism and discipleship along the lines of Navigator, but really kind of a big step toward the church. Right. Yeah, you know, it's uh, I, I've said this on several podcasts. And, of course, Jack has also had a Navigator training, and I did too, and... Uh, is the fact that it's really what's really amiss a is that they I, I refer to their approach to discipleship as like a chain letter uh, you disciple somebody so they will disciple somebody so they will disciple somebody but there's not any comprehensive worldview where you ever are supposed to actually get together and build anything like a city on a hill right <laughs> and that's what's really missing and it's really it's really a shame when you when you when you I, I I know some really 
godly men who their personal walk with the Lord is, is really seems dialed in in scripture memory. They're champions. And yet when you ask them about building the kingdom of God, they just, you sort of get this deer in the headlights look. Hmm. So I can definitely appreciate what you're talking about there uh, in that greenhouse, uh, something like that. You also, now you also had uh, a working relationship with Edith Schaefer. Did you know Francis Schaefer? I met Francis Schaefer a few times in Charleston. There were some people in Charleston who wanted to fund How Should We Then Live series, and Francis Schaefer visited Charleston, and I got to meet him through friends at the church that was sponsoring a large portion of that video series, How Should We Then Live? So I read his books, and then when I was in the um, pro-life movement in a big way, um, Edith Schaefer. We're talking Operation Rescue. Operation Rescue type stuff, yeah. I was never an official member of Operation Rescue, but I was doing the same things, never as a protest and never simply to cause commotion, always to save babies' lives. But I was arrested about the 50th time, and the seminary, Covenant Seminary, was upset about it. And Edith Schaefer came to St. Louis on her own nickel and stayed in my home and then spoke to the seminary and said, my husband would turn over in his grave if he knew that you were bothered by what this man is doing. And she sort of got the heat off of me, you know. I suspect she could. Uh, you also were, a lot of people who are not at PCA circles or did not go to seminary at Covenant wouldn't necessarily know who Robert Rayburn was, but he was a great man. Robert Rayburn was a great man. He was, uh, he loved me for some reason. It means that uh, there is grace in this world, but he took me under his wing and taught me in a kind of a side line more about preaching, more about liturgy, about rubrics. We read his book and I had his class on worship, but he would let me, he invited me to his home for Thanksgiving, he invited me to his home for Christmas, he invited me to his home for lots of occasions, but it was always, he had a mission, he had purpose in it, and it was always to be a, a fatherly figure or an a, a elder brother to me and give me some guidance because he thought that with my zeal for evangelism that there might be something under the hood that was worth trying to tune up. <laughs> um, and of course, another man that almost nobody that we would l be listening to this podcast would ever have heard of, but a man who was kind of like a, he was probably a David Brainerd, and that was David Weinkoff. David Weinkoff. Uh, died August 18th, 1993, and he fell off of a mountain. Um, he and I were like brothers, and we had even written our own funerals and our own stipulations about burial and stuff, and um, he was going to bury me if I died first, and I was going to bury him, do his funeral if he died first, and interestingly, he died first, and so I did his funeral, and Dr. George Knight and I did his funeral but um, if um, and was he a reconstructionist or he was but he would not claim the label because he thought the label was more of a problem 
it added a hurdle that he didn't want to have to negotiate. So he he just was. He loved God's law. He was filled with vision of uh, building uh, the church, building uh, the kingdom that was rare. I mean, it was really rare. And he had um, been taught historic premillennialism and had rejected that out of hand. Yeah, I remember him as being a, a great preacher. I used to think that he was the great greatest preacher alive when he was preaching. I know that's saying a lot. And I, I still have his handwritten notes from his sermons. I have the the manuscripts of his sermons. And I, I read them and I marvel. They're way beyond what somebody of his age should be able to do. Plus, you think about a guy like Weinkoff. He was a straight-A student at Furman, straight-A student at Covenant Seminary. And when you've got professors writing books and dedicating them to my student, David Weinkoff, I mean, <laughs> there's got to be really something there, something substantial. Um, the PCA's taken a sort of a sad turn. Evangelicalism at large has taken a turn away from our historic standards, away from Scripture. The um, What the Westminster says on... Um, covenant of grace, covenant of works. We just don't understand. We don't hear it preached any longer. We, we really don't understand that we're not saved by um, having faith in faith. That we're not, we think we're saved because we've repented and we've believed rather than we are saved because of what Jesus did. We continually confuse man's response to the gospel for the gospel. The gospel is what the Lord Jesus Christ did, the active and passive work of Christ. And we surely should respond to that in faith and repentance. But our faith and repentance is not what saves us. Christ saves us. And we think God grades on a curve, but Jesus shattered that curve. Speaking of active obedience, is... um, is that one of the issues that you, that you think that the federal vision is most profoundly wrong concerning? Active obedience. Um, I well, the, the imputation of Christ's active obedience. We, we would confessional Presbyterians of of your of your color would believe in what we call double imputation. I believe that the there's the imputation of Christ's righteousness as well as the removal of guilt. Both has to both have to take place, so it's not it's not enough to have just a clean record and be guiltless. We have to have the merit that Christ earned, and, and the merit we receive imputed to us by the Holy Spirit is not Christ's righteousness as the second person of the Godhead, but as God incarnate, as God incarnate, and it's also not as though we have we are what we are upon conversion. And we add Jesus to our lives and we mix it all up and then we go through sanctification so that we become more and more and more saved or more and more righteous. We are completely righteous at the moment that God saves us. We have become very much Romish in our understanding of salvation. Um, we have pretty much left the West the reformed faith. And I and I say that kind of 
blatantly, but I know there are a lot of great men preaching the true gospel, but there are a lot of pe- there are a lot of places and men with churches that have reformed on the sign and they went to reformed seminaries and they really are not clear on what the gospel is. So. Do you uh, do you know David Hall? I do. Is David Hall a re- uh a man who's not using the labels but is in the same camp it's interesting I talked to David just last week and um, I haven't spoken with him in a few years but my impression of David and I'll just say this this is my take David is doing all that he should do he's doing it well if if you hung the moniker on him that he's a a reconstructionist he couldn't deny it if he were in a court of law and he was trying to be found not guilty of being a reconstructionist he would fail if that makes sense well the reason I thought that was interesting is that he's going to be one of the speakers at the G3 conference which is not a the uh, reconstructionist friendly crowd I would imagine he he can easily and wonderfully and competently walk in any of the crowds. Did you say like like, like uh, George Grant? Oh, very, yeah. He and George Grant would be very much alike in their competence, and they're very comfortable. I mean, many times I've been with David Hall, and I have been talking about theonomy, and he's whispered in my ear, I wouldn't say that right now because it will create barriers. Don't use the terms. Use the truth. You know, um, with Reconstructionist Radio... Uh, and uh, I, I, I've, I, because I talked to a lot of different people, I've talked to Brian Amshire, who's a member of Hanover Presbytery with you, and he's been a guy who was a writer for Calcedon and uh, a, a victim of many church wars, evidently, like yourself, like many of the men who evidently are, because <laughs> I guess the joke is the Hanover is where the, the, the warriors go for their sunset tour or something. <laughs> But uh, the wounded warrior presbytery, but um, but he he eschews the labels, mm-hmm. uh, as does Grant. Uh, I've even heard that uh, R.C. Sproul Jr. or R.C. Sproul, probably both, are a lot closer to Reconstructionists than than perhaps many people would know. But they they have too much at stake with Ligonier and. I guess. I remember in one of the table talks, R.C. Sr. said that he get, he actually gave thanks for the writings of Gary North for opening the Older Testament to him. And I thought that was a big step of courage. I don't think R.C.'s really afraid of anybody or anything. He's, he's secure enough. He's big enough. But if you were to put him next to a Greg Bonson or a George Grant, you really wouldn't see much difference in them. The the language, the terminology may be slightly different, but you would not see in Reconstruction theology that you can't find clearly stated in, in scriptural terms. So I don't, see, I don't see the absolute necessity for the terms except that it's kind of like the label on a can. I remember when I was in service, we used to have a, there was a dented can and labelless can section, 
and there'd be you know maybe 150 cans with no labels on them and you'd sort of guess at what was in it but they were all five cents <laughs> and you could buy them for five cents well sometimes the the label helps you streamline it you know you can't know what's in the can unless you have a label on it well until you open it I'm, I'm, I guess I want to be like that personally. I want you to open the open the can and see what's in, and what's going to come out is hopefully Bible um, that is active, that is building uh, discipleship, evangelism. Uh, I'm a churchman to the hilt, but I pick and choose where I'm going to use labels. Well, I, one of my favorite anecdotes about you is that when you were a pastor at Christ Church. Christ Presbyterian Church in Elkton, Maryland, you had a business card that had to identify Christ Presbyterian Church as being uh, the, the Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Presbyterians because you had such a, I guess, a, an assortment of apostate Northern Presbyterians. And Oh, it's true. In fact, I had a reading group of, I will call it apostate Presbyterian people, pastors, and I remember one time um, I asked them to read the Westminster Confession with me and they didn't know what it was. So I gave them all one and we started reading it. And after a couple of weeks, one of them says, after reading this, I think that I'm going to have to agree that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And I said, but if you do that, that will blow away your neo-orthodoxy. You, you will have made an affirmation of a historical event and neo-orthodoxy will not allow you to do that. And the pastor says, you know what, you're right. I, I guess I will. I'm reneging on what I just said. And, you know, because it's important to, t- to talk them out of it. And, but I lost many a, uh, um, how to say this, we were growing and we were outgrowing buildings. So we would have to rent spaces and sometimes churches we try to rent their extra space and they would not rent to us because of that statement that we were the bible believing jesus loving presbyterians in the area and that's kind of in your face uh another story that i remember that i enjoyed is that when you were first relocating this last time to savannah and you were um being supported by basically um not anglican but but episcopalians here in the city of Savannah, and you were working closely with the men's group there, and I think you were basically teaching that Reformed theology, or which I don't know what the specific topic was, and one of the guys said, we don't believe that, do we? And then the pastor said, yes, we do. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, a lot of people don't, rem- don't know that the 39 articles of the Episcopal Church is as reformed as anything Westminster or Heidelberg ever wrote. Well, Stephen Perk says that the Westminster Confession really was a sort of an amalgamation of the 39 articles and then I think the the Irish Confession or something. Yeah. So so the 39 articles predated the Westminster Confession. Correct. Um, well, Cranmer wrote the 39 articles, and then in 1643, the prayer book needed, the Parliament thought that the prayer book needed to be reworked. So they asked the Westminster Divines to rework the prayer book and reissue a statement to help them theologically. 
After a few weeks, the Westminster Assembly said the prayer book can't be redeemed. So they asked for permission to write a whole new confession, and they did. And then from the Westminster Confession in uh, 1660, another prayer book was issued that was more in line with the Westminster Assembly than anything you may have ever seen. Uh, and it included Cranmer's work, and then, um, then there's the next best prayer book is the 1928 prayer book. But from 1660 to 1928, you had the Episcopal Church almost in a static state of being reformed in their theology, or what they declared to be their theology, even though they didn't practice it. Well, I would say the best prayer book is the Valley of Vision. <laughs> I would agree. <laughs> but it, it isn't a liturgical prayer book. No, that's true. Uh, you know, inter- interesting antidote is the guy, when I was in the Navy, in the Navigators there in Norfolk, Virginia, uh, it was a, uh, I don't know if he was an engineering or weapons officer on a nuclear submarine. Guy played, he hit hard. He, we played soccer, and this guy, could. he was like, man, he was like getting hit by a truck. He gave me my first copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith, Larger and Shorter Catechism, hardbound. That's, yeah. that's a good man right there. He gives you a yeah. hardbound. And then he gave me, along with that, Dabney's uh, biography of Jackson. Good man. <laughs> Those are two good gifts, right? <laughs> the guy went on to be a bishop in the Anglican Church. I guess he wasn't going to be needing the Westminster Confession, but but he's and he's located in Georgia, up in Lawrenceville, Georgia. Uh, Henry uh, Henry S. Baldwin, the Right Reverend Henry S. Baldwin. We called him Scotty Baldwin back in the day. And Scotty, if you ever hear this, you know, um, what are some of the books? You know, um, readers or leaders, uh, or and or leaders or readers. I guess is the way it goes. I forget. What are You've, you've got a pretty good library. You like to read. Yeah. And uh, Joanne wants me to start a self-help group called Overreaders Anonymous. Yeah. So. <laughs> but um, you, I'm, I asked you once before not long ago if a person was new. They were just, they just discovered the Reformed faith and they'd gotten some of the major issues worked out and now they were moving or interested in in. Christian Reconstruction, uh, the book you recommended was, un, was it Unconditional Surrender? Unconditional Surrender by Gary North is an absolute magnificent book. It's, it's basic, it's pure as it can be. But it reads almost like an evangelical book, though. It reads oh, it almost is. like a book you'd pick up in a, in a, book, a Christian bookstore. If people didn't know Gary North wrote it and had the prejudice against Gary North, they would love the book and it would be a bestseller. It's great. Unconditional Surrender is a foundational book. The truths in it are foundational. Then I'd have them read Fair Sunshine. Fair Sunshine by Jock Purvis is an important book because it helps you count the cost. And I think that so many people claim to be Christians who think there's no cost in it. It's all kind of pie in the sky. But when you read what, the, what happened with the Covenanters and how they were persecuted for their faith, I mean, not just persecuted, but tortured and lost their lives for their faith, they understood that their citizenship was in heaven and not here, and that was okay. 
they they were fully committed. And I, so I think a, as a young Christian, a, bi, a, a good biography, and this is a set of biographies, um, David Haxton and Richard Cameron and people like that, uh, heroes of the faith, short lives, in, lives of great impact. Then I think of another magnificent book. In fact, on your deathbed, if you say, what are the most important five books you've read? If you've read this one, it'll be one of them. And that is The Puritan Hope by Murray. That book, after you get past about the second chapter, because you have to warm up to it, it's not one that you're going to read and say, you know, pantingly, boy, this is a great book. You've got to start it, and it's got to, you, you warm up to it. But the book is just magnificent. And so it sets your course that, um, that the gospel is a victorious gospel. And Jesus is Lord of the entire world and of the entire universe. And, and, that, and that that matters and how I live my life with that in mind matters and will, and will change the outcome on the other end of my life, whatever I do. So, I, I, That's probably one of the books I would say, uh, this is an interesting question, what book have you given away the most? Because I've probably given away more copies of The Puritan Hope than any other book, except maybe Dwayne Spencer's, you know, the uh, Tulip. But okay. but but I've given away a lot of copies of The Puritan Hope. Well, I, I or the Uncivil War. That's probably another. But that's an, that's another discussion. I used to save my money so that I could buy a. a, a you could buy them for ninety nine cents, but I would buy a hundred copies at a time of a book by John Blanchard called Right with God. And I just bought I just bought a crate of four hundred to give to my neighbors. So the basic the basic gospel is is really the starting initiation point. But after that, I would surely give the Puritan Hope as a close follow up or and I would say there's a reason. Now I would Fair Sunshine you'd put over even Fox's Book of Martyrs. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because it's a, and, and I think I can understand why, but I'd like to hear you say why you think Fair Sunshine, is it just better written? Uh, or is it there, there more detail? Uh, you know, that obviously the Christians in the first few centuries and throughout church history, what's really amazing to me is I consider martyrdom or the, the, or the, the, the bravery of these people. Number one, you know they were sustained by the Holy Spirit because in many cases they were illiterate they had never even read scripture. Mm-hmm. They may only have heard some preaching, being a lot of them Hellenic, had only heard maybe excerpts from a few letters, maybe a gospel, but it wasn't like they could read scripture every day and be fortified in their hearts. So obviously it was the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that enabled them to sustain what they did. So many of them went to their death with only the very minimum uh, little cognitive knowledge about what it was they believed but it because but because that was a a kernel it was a seed of faith it was true faith truly the work of the holy spirit they were it, it sustained them but in the in the case of fair sunshine these are people who are theologically mature and very aware the the covenanters were like on a, on a scale of one to ten uh, modern day they would be seminary pr- presidents in, in america yeah Fair Sunshine is important because the specifics of what they believed and what was rejected by the non-Christian world or the papist 
is crystal clear in each one of the small biographies in the book so that it's not just a, a personal story at a personal cost of a martyr, but there's a there's historical theology woven into it all the way through. Where Fox's Book of Martyrs, you basically get the history of the execution, the history of the death. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I can, I, and you know, I can go to the scripture and I can read about Christ's death, I can read about Stephen's death, um, I can I can get a sense of why Stephen was put to death after he preached and showed that the Older Testament was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and how these people were guilty of killing the Lord of glory, putting him to death. Um, that's, that's sort of on the lines of what I would say Fair Sunshine reaches out and tacks 1,600 years later. Mm-hmm. So, and you know. Would you say what we're facing here, now you, you live in a beautiful area of um, outside of old Savannah, in the Southbridge community, 3,000 homes. And it is like a parish, like we mentioned, and it's a beautiful area, groomed. It's, it, would you say that that in the South, and perhaps in America overall, but in the South in particular, because that's where we are, both sons of the South, is that the predominant faith is pietistic, therapeutic deism? I think that therapeutic, pietistic, practical deism, yes. They're living like deists. They may not be able to self-consciously define what their their faith, but they're living as though God is an add-on. He's out there somewhere, maybe involved a little bit, but uh, he's an unknown God and not a personal God. Um, yet, they don't see the connection, I think, between... Now, this is my culture. So, I mean, I grew up here. I know. The culture, people don't see God and Jesus as one. They'll call on Jesus as though he's the cosmic bellhop. When they need help, when they're scared, they'll call on Jesus. But they really don't see the Father's, God the Father's providence in their lives. They don't see the practicality of like John seventeen three, and this is eternal life that they may know you, speaking of the Father. You know, they they don't know the Father. They don't know how great he is. They don't know the truth about Jesus. So yeah, I think deism is a real good identification. You have and strangely, we've not for some reason, and we've known each other for a long time, but I don't know that we, we've, I can't honestly say that we've spent, we've never gone on vacation together. We've never spent a week together. I've never gone out evangelizing with you. And, but, but my understanding is that you have a passion for that. Oh, I love it. It's my, it's, it's what I have a heart for probably more than anything else. Uh, of course, I remember the story of, and I've been provoked by this sometimes that Dawson Trotman, the founder of the Navigators had a, a personal policy that he didn't want to go to bed until he'd gone out and shared uh, the gospel with someone every day. Uh, I don't know if you take it to that extreme, or that would I wouldn't. It, I, that probably extreme is the wrong word for that. You, <laughs> but in dealing with typical American culture, uh, where people are, you know, their busy lives, successful, chasing the chasing the dream, whatever. Mike, what is 
give us some tips on evangelism because I don't know. I mean, a, along with prayer, I don't think anybody believes they pray enough. Not if they're really, That's not true. if they're not if they're really aware. Uh, you know, I don't think any of us believe that our prayer life is what we would have it to be, mm-hmm. or what the Lord would have it to be. And I don't know that many of us think that we share the gospel as often that we're as instant in season and out of season as we ought to be. Um, now you're living in a community, uh, not gated, but it ought to be gated. Uh, it's a beautiful area with people that are successful business owners, retirees, um, unconcerned. Correct. Unconcerned. They're more concerned about the elections in November than they are about their their soul's well-being. That's right. They think that they're already they've got their Jesus card punched already because of a decisional regeneration or church affiliation or baptism as a child or confirmation or they're good people or whatever. Give us some talk to us a little bit about evangelism and what do you think are some keys to help people overcome their reluctance? to share the faith. Well, you, you've uh, punched my button now, so this is good. I, I love it. I, first of all, you have to evangelize because Jesus is worthy of their honor. He's worthy to be believed. And apart from trusting Christ for salvation, the Father cannot receive the glory He deserves. Because if we're going to... John fourteen six. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to me. No man comes to the Father except through me. So I evangelize for the purpose of recruiting worshipers for God. That's number one. And because I realize that I'm in a particular culture, I have to pre. I actually prethink. What am I going to do today? What am I going? Who am I going to meet? In what circumstances? And I remember something that Van Til said that I've made an application of. Van Til talked about the point of contact. So when I know that I'm going to run into so-and-so at the golf club, I know what he's going to talk about. He's going to talk about the weather. He's going to talk about his golf game. He's going to, so I pre-think, if he says this, how can, I, how can I contact him? How can I touch him getting his attention to tell him the gospel? Because... I want him to be faced with the claims of Christ. So I pre-think. I'm not, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, so I sort of sneak up on them. And if, if I can be kind and if I can be gentle and if I can get them in... The hardest part of evangelism is the first 10 seconds. Once you get them engaged in the discussion, it's a cakewalk from then on. The first 10 seconds is the hard part. How do you get people to start talking, to start thinking? And so that's, in a, if you're going to really, if you really love Christ and love God and you also love people, but I'm not a, I'm not a Christian humanist. I, I, I do evangelism for the glory of God first and for the salvation of the soul second. I know that sounds strange. I know there are people that probably will hate me for saying that, but I my priorities are God and His honor, and man's man is far below God. But I was on the sofa with a guy 
at the golf club the other day, and he was he was talking about how one of his friends was ill, and I said to him, "Well, is he is he close to eternity?" And he said, "I think he probably is." And so I asked him the diagnostic questions that I learned with James Kennedy, and they're excellent questions. Kennedy gave you a lot of good starting places. I said, well, have you ever come to the place in your life where you knew for sure that if you died, you'd go to heaven? And he says, I've never been asked that question. And I said, well, I want to ask you that question. I want to give you the answer so that you can take it to your friend who's facing eternity. So in essence, I got two for one. So I got to tell him the gospel. And of course, he was overwhelmed by the truth of the gospel. And he didn't know what to do. He said, I can't tell my friend that. I said, well, you introduce me to your friend and I'll tell him that. So the best way to do evangelism is to lead somebody to Christ because they know more heathens than you do and let them take you. You know, we used to, back in the days when I was in marketing, network marketing, where you were trying to recruit people. And that was one of, you, we call it sort of leapfrogging. What you did is if you asked somebody, would you be interested in earning some extra money? Pride would prevent them from ad- admitting that $300 would pay their utility bill that they couldn't, didn't have the money to pay. So they would never answer that question in the affirmative. You were asking a question that was sure to get a negative answer, which is not where you want to go. It ends the discussion. Instead, you'd say, listen, do you happen to know anybody? Well, we're looking for people. Do you happen to know anybody that could use, uh, uh, you know, a second income? Well, then oftentimes they would say, well, I don't know, but t- what is it? And I can maybe think of somebody or they'll say, then they might say, well, what about me? So that was the idea we called that leapfrogging is going to the other person. So, you know, I could see that, um, Making a case, you know, we do what we call, this is, uh, we call it dog evangelism because, you know, I have Ruger and we, we walk and we run into other people who have dogs. And I'll ask people, I said, hey, is your dog going to heaven? <laughs> and they'll say, what? Don't all dogs go to heaven? I say, well. All people don't. All, all dog owners don't. <laughs> and, I said, my, and my dog goes where I go. So. But, you know, the other thing we talked, we were talking with Martin Salbrady last week, talking about work evangelism, saying, you know, uh, because work is worship. Yeah. Work done for the glory of God uh, is, is worship. And that God takes delight in every drop of sweat when it, the work is done to, to please and glorify him. And, you know, you, you talk to guys at work and say, you know, man, you're great. You're great at what you do. You know what makes your job even more of a delight and more beneficial? What's that? Is if you were doing all of it to glorify the one who made you. Yeah. That's, a, that's, a, that, you know, that's an interesting segue. Now, when we talk about evangelism, I've got to talk about two kinds of evangelism. There's one is because you're not an evangelistic machine. Right. There's providential evangelism where you're, you're not walking around every day frantic like a guy that if I don't share the gospel, God's going to spank me. Right. You trust God to lead you into those divinely ordained encounters where I, hopefully uh, the person has is, is, is got ears to hear because God has prepared him to hear. Mm-hmm. And then there's that purposeful evangelism. Which is still providential because God purposes everything that he provides us. I think you need to be cocked and ready all the time for either one. 
you need to be you need to be self-conscious about this so that as you're going you're looking for opportunities looking for people to talk to the other day this has happened to me more than a dozen times in my life but I was at the hospital visiting somebody the door was closing and all of a sudden a hand stuck through the door to open the doors in the elevator and the guy got on the elevator and he said he took God's name in vain and said boy I would have been late for my appointment if I hadn't gotten on this elevator and I looked at him and I said is this the first time you've prayed today and he said what I said well you just you just asked for God to damn something I said is that the first time you've prayed today and he says I don't know I don't what are you talking about I, I didn't mean a thing by it I said exactly you didn't mean a thing by it and so I got to tell him about he had just committed uh, you know Exodus 20 verse 7 thou shalt I will not found him guiltless who takes his name in vain I got you know you realize you just incurred guilt and there's a remedy for your guilt so I got to tell him part of the gospel at least I got to tell him part that has happened so many times uh, things like that but you've got to be and I would call that not the nicest or gentlest or the most comfortable I mean I don't even as, as brazen or bold as I am even I don't enjoy that kind of providential you know collision but you you need to learn to take them and make the make the most of them and I gave him my card and said let's talk again maybe he will maybe he won't I haven't heard yet consciously searching for opportunities to proclaim the gospel and that when the opportunity comes we need to make it our priority we can't say, okay, now God's given me this divine encounter, so I'm, but, but I've got to be home for supper in 15 minutes. What I need to do is realize I can, be, I, can, I, can, I can become hungry, I can miss supper, because this is more important. I believe that we really, you know, I'm not a Dawson Trotman where I won't go to bed, but, but I will very self-consciously go about my day looking for people to talk to and if I need to change my schedule, I will change my schedule. If I need to crash my schedule, I'll crash my schedule for the opportunity to sit down and declare the gospel, present the gospel to someone one-on-one. -on -one. And the, the method that I typically use, if, I, if, it's, if it can be more than just a conversation, I use something called the bridge illustration. Because the bridge illustration is, is it's simple, it's clear, and I have, I have one section of it that's probably different than anybody else's bridge illustration. So if all of you out there that know the bridge illustration, I try to make sure that we understand the difference between man's response to the gospel and the gospel. So there's, there's a point after 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ once suffered for sins, just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. I'll, I'll pause here and say, now what I'm saying here is I want you to know who Jesus is. Jesus was in eternity past, and he, in a Trinitarian covenant with his Father and Holy Spirit, decided to come into space and time, taking on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. He lived a his life completely obeying the Father, keeping all of His laws, meriting salvation for His people. He submitted Himself to death. He died on a cross. He continued under, under the power of death for three days. He rose from the dead, conquering death and Satan. He walked among men, and He ascended back to the 
right hand of God the Father Almighty and He's going to come again to judge the living and the dead. If you believe that, that is the gospel. And you should believe that because it's true. You should believe that because that's the because that is the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the we're saved by what Jesus did, and that is the gospel. Now, how I respond to it is, you know, I, I need. You to know, I, re- I remember when um, I, we'd shared the bridge illustration for years, and never thinking about the fact that when you drew the cross, or the Jesus, that was the bridge, yeah. is that there was an important theological point that you just brought up there, is that, that Christ was God and man. That's right. A, for a bridge to join two opposite shores, it has to be firmly planted in both. He had to be He had to be God, and he had to be man, or he couldn't reconcile God, man to God. That's right. And so that was the part that they we never uh, hit that. Um, yeah, that, that illustration is incomplete and actually could be an error, maybe even under the Galatian curse, unless you do, you know, make sure you're clear on what the gospel is. Thank you. You're a churchman, as you meant, you just used that term earlier. And um, in the interest of full disclosure, you hold to the Westminster Confession, larger, shorter catechism, without exception. I hold to preponderant somnity, not exclusive somnity, but other than that, I'm a full subscriptionist. Okay. And I'm a studied full subscriptionist. It's not, a, it's not just a casual statement. I've actually gone through every line. Right. Um, so you're a, you're a churchman, and, and, and in terms of regular principle of worship and office, are you a two-office uh, two yes. churchman, elder and deacon? Elder and deacon. All, all elders should be able to teach. That's correct. Um, so, um, Mike is as much a reformed churchman as you're going to find. I mean, he's not an Anabaptist. He doesn't have one cell of Anabaptist in him. <laughs> Praise the Lord. <laughs> now, some of us are sectarian minimalists. <laughs> Mike is not. He is a he's a card carrying presby. I am uh, of the first magnitude, but. What do you think, Mike, is should every organized congregation, every assembly, that, a local assembly that identifies itself as an assembly of within the universal body of Christ, um, should, should they all have, what, what sorts of ministries, uh, aside from training, the saints for the work of service, which is my understanding is the primary reason why God gave spiritual gifts, you know, apostle, prophets, pastors, teachers, and and the offices of, of elder, at least, is to train the, the saints for the work of service. It's not for you to do their Bible study for them and to regurgitate it into their, their mouths each week. Yes, right. Um, it's to train them to do the work of service. What, what do you think is the would should be the attitude? For instance, let's say you've got a a uh, a local congregation that's located near an abortion mill, and day in and day out, there's no one out there advocating for the unborn, interposing between the child and the butcher. And body is not engaged. 
Are you casting your pearl before swine to go to them? Uh, if you go to them and they say, well, who are you to tell us? You're not a member of this congregation. Uh, who can go to a, a local fellowship and speak a word of admonition or correction? Um, is that where the priesthood of the believer comes in? Or do we need to respect these, these, uh, these boundaries? No. I, I, well, first of all, um, I, I certainly believe in the priesthood of all believers, but a priest is not, is not necessarily a shepherd. And one thing I've learned is that sheep don't lead sheep and sheep don't feed sheep. So I think it's a, the responsibility of the pastors, of the shepherds, to bring before their congregation the issues. Now, everybody in a congregation would not be called to go to an abortion clinic, um, but everyone in the congregation ought to be called to pray against what's going on at the abortion clinic, and they also ought to be called to support those who were called to stand against the abortion and an abortion clinic. I think the shepherd's job is in his own congregation is to keep the light on the sin, and as long as the light shines, the the you know eventually the the um, sin hates the light and will run into the darkness. But also, I think that pastors need to speak to other pastors from the collegial perspective of, look, this is what we're doing. Would you join us? And we we need to not just recruit people in our own congregations, but we need to recruit pastors to to join us in leading congregations. Is that sort of a thing of the past now? Uh, this collegial or you know pastors uh, fellowships or local pastors organizations is that is that does that go on much anymore? Well, today I'm afraid that many pastors are into their personal kingdom building rather than building the kingdom of Christ. And that's not an accusation against any particular person, but I could put names and dates and places with that, and I, I just won't. But there was a day when people like you know Benjamin Palmer, pastor First Presbyterian New Orleans, would trade pulpits with the pastor First Baptist of New Orleans, and they would trade pulpits. And they didn't, they didn't step on each other's toes. They proclaimed what the Bible said, um, and they were collegial. And in those days, I mean, I've even read recently some uh, articles by John Wesley, who would be considered a, a rank Arminian, and he sounds more Reformed than many of the people that call themselves Reformed today. But he was a, he was a recruiter. He was very much a recruiter and a, a, a leader. Um, I'm not a fan of Wesley in many areas, but some I am. Yeah, we we need to see ourselves as local congregations, and maybe we are, you know, we have our identity. But that doesn't. But, but there are other local congregations that are part of the body of Christ, and we need to join together and work together. We may not even want to worship together but we ought to be able to work together. And our theology, unless they're heretical, should not bar us from having fellowship and laboring with them. Yeah, it was, it was simple in the... In the uh, I didn't realize you'd been arrested so many times in Operation Rescue. Uh, but, you know, back in those days, you didn't really care. Anybody 
was as good as the next body just as long as they could block the door. Just the heavy body, that's you, right. You know, it, but when you're out ministering in front of abortion mills today, you want people who are uh, who believe the gospel and who are able to use the gospel. Um, well, this has just been sort of a general, sort of like I said, catching up. We don't get to see each other a lot. And... Um, visiting with you but i did want to get a, a, just a little bit you know who who would you say uh you know i can remember uh, a couple of years ago maybe it's been that long when you i asked you i said as you survey the landscape the christian landscape <clears throat> who do you have your eye on who do you think is doing a better job than than most people as far as um, embodying or, or actually applying in a comprehensive manner the principles that make up what we call Christian Reconstruction. You and you pointed to Jeff Durbin. I would I would probably put Joe Boot uh in that category. In fact I think that Jeff is fantastic. I think Joe is Joe Boot, real simple name, he's in Canada. But the guy's got he he he's been captured by Christ. He understands what it's about. He's he's got the intellect He's got the social skill. He he's the package. God has his hand on Joe Boot. Joe Boot. B O O T, just like it sounds. Do you know where in Canada he is? I uh, don't. I do. I should, but I don't remember offhand. Um, yeah, most Americans he, couldn't even name the provinces of Canada. And he wrote a book recently called "The Mission of God." It is a life-changing book. It's one of those that it's. It probably would be in your top ten on your deathbed. It's the like, Mission of God by Joe Boot. Yes. Uh, what do you think about... Um, <clears throat> Lorraine Bettner also. You need to read Lorraine Bettner. <laughs> who you were also a personal friend of and, and got his library? No. Uh, I, I got. He gave me a bunch of his books, but he didn't give me his whole library. Um, yeah, Lorraine. That was, I forget. See, there's, if we sit here for another hour, I'll come up with a couple other... Um, prominent men. I was that, friends with Elizabeth Elliot, and she actually changed my life. Giving, she gave me a speech one day about how um, masculinity appealed to femininity, and femininity, femininity appealed to masculinity. And she, she had a, she's actually written written on this, and it just, she was far ahead of Piper and those guys on biblical manhood and womanhood. Far ahead, Elizabeth yeah, Elliot yeah. was magnificent. Of course, she used to be. You, you're. Uh, uh, I interviewed uh, Doug Wilson. Yeah. And your name got me. I, I've said your your name is like a skeleton key. It opens lots of doors <laughs> for me. I love Doug Wilson. He's. We have some differences, but I have to say, I learned a great deal from the man, and I'm. I'm uh, his debtor. Appreciate you, uh, my friend Mike Chastain. Uh, for joining us here on The War Room. Thank you for joining us in The War Room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by my soul among lions. Why do the nations rage? 